is our children learning? You didn't build that. Because you'd be in jail. All men and women created by the go, you know the you know the thing. Those are the leaders of the past, but here at Gen Z GOP, we are looking to the future. Join us as we discuss how we can create a party that is worthy of our generation. Please clap. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Gen Z GOP Podcast. I'm John Olds, and I'm joined by my co-host, El Kalish. I know it's been a little while uh, in between episodes, but we're very excited to be back with you today. We have a jam-packed episode planned for you, and we're going to be talking all things Second Amendment. So, Elle, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, guys. All it took was three episodes and eight months, and John can finally say my last name correctly. So, shout out to you for that one. Yeah, it's good to be back. And and L, I don't know if you want to introduce our our honored guest here with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. So today with us is Sam Aboto. Um, Sam is incredible. He helps us out on our social media team, um, but he's also an incredible policy guy. So if you guys have not read, go ahead and take a trip over to our medium, which is Gen Z GOP org. And on that, you can read Sam's piece on the Second Amendment. So with that, I'm going to let Sam introduce himself and we'll hand it off to him. Yeah, thanks, Elf, for the great introduction. Um, I really had fun writing that piece, and um, I would encourage you to read it if you haven't yet. Um, but yeah, like Al explained, I kind of help out on social media with Gen Z GOP, um, help out with the policy team as well, have uh, written something before that Second Amendment piece as well. So um, yeah, I'm excited to be on the podcast and sort of give my thoughts on the Second Amendment and where I think Gen Z can really make some ground. So Sam, can you just talk us through your reasoning for for writing that piece? I know that you brought up a a lot of different points of history and a lot of different sort of motivations for for why you you wrote that piece. Yeah. So, you know, when I was sort of brainstorming about a topic, I, I sort of wanted something that I think people tend to misunderstand. And, you know, the Second Amendment is something that people I feel both on the left and the right sort of misconstrue whether or not it's about the founders intentions or whether or not we should ban certain types of weapons or pass this background check this background check that and you know I feel like the second amendment applies to all kinds of groups as well it it affects African Americans as we know uh, Hispanics whites so it's really an issue that people take to heart and we see this in the 2020 election Uh, Both candidates certainly talked up the Second Amendment a lot in different ways. So, you know, in writing this piece, I wanted to also introduce the history behind the Second Amendment and why we need to take it so strongly today. And I hope that I did a good job of that. And I believe that, you know, if the Republican Party going forward accepts the Second Amendment has something that is a core institution of the U.S., then uh, we'll be in great shape. Yeah, so Sam, your uh, the title of your piece is I'm a Second Amendment Absolutist. So do you want to kind of walk us through what that means to you? Um, and like, did you always hold this belief? Or is this something that you've just recently come into? What has kind of been your journey um, and reasoning for kind of creating that as a title? So, you know, I wasn't always, I guess, a self-described Second Amendment absolutist. Um, I used to be kind of more pro-gun control, especially when I read about, you know, the school shootings, especially Parkland and uh, Sandy Hook. I I was more leaning towards gun control there. But I think the title comes from a quote by Condoleezza Rice, where she describes 
her her dad actually defending the entire family against white supremacists in the 60s and the 50s uh, during the civil rights movement. And her dad would hold up a caravan and be on her porch and sort of fend off all the attackers. And I thought that was a fantastic quote to use as the title because it shows it's a black woman, uh, a powerful black woman expressing a strong sentiment for the Second Amendment, describing how it saved her life, how it saved her entire family's life. And it's a great introduction to the piece about, you know, supporting sort of or rejecting actually all kinds of, not necessarily all kinds, but a lot of gun control restrictions. Now, this is not to say that I absolutely want zero gun control. I think a lot of people, especially libertarians, see gun control as, you know, any gun control is unconstitutional. I don't really ascribe to that view, but I think we've done a lot more wrong than we have right on gun control. So sort of sort of in that in that same vein, Sam, I know that that you're obviously a, a man of color, you have an immigrant background. Uh, and you're a conservative, which I guess in this day and age is sort of a a rare combination of, of <laughs> it traits. Is, it is, <laughs> <laughs> but but nonetheless, we we appreciate it. And I just want you to sort of talk to us a little bit about not only your experience there, but sort of taking us out of the Twitter bubble, the social media sphere, and talking about uh, your experience with with other uh, people of color, with other immigrants and their appreciation for the second amendment and sort of how that plays out in the quote unquote real world. So I strongly believe that the second amendment is one of the most unique, if not unique things about America, right? No other country or at least politically stable country is able to have its government agree that look, we'll let our people defend themselves against our own tyranny, have this check on our power, right? A lot of either socialist or communist or even less or even socially liberal countries uh, don't have this check on their power. And so coming from this immigrant point of view, I have seen the destruction that a lot of authoritarian or dictators have, have done to a country. And a lot of the reasons why this happens is because the people can't defend themselves. The people are not allowed to hold weapons, and if they are, they're confiscated. Only a few people are allowed to hold weapons, whether or not it's friends or family of the dictator. It's people that the dictator trusts that they can hold weapons. And so when a revolution or a coup happens, it's the military that tends to take over because they're the ones with the weapons. And so if you want a strong and stable uh, state to be able to last for a while, you need to have a citizenry that is able to take up arms. And so one of the biggest anti, anti-gun anti argument that I hear is like, look, man, you're never going to be able to defend yourself against the US government. It's this huge entity that have weapons on weapons on weapons and nukes. You know, what is your AR-15 going to do against that? But, you know, if you look at the history of guns, that's where it's been used, you know, like the Revolutionary War was fought against the biggest Navy at the time with some people just carrying their muskets around. Right. So it's you, you can never know when these events are going to happen. And the Second Amendment is there sort of just in case. Right. And so yeah, we Sam, need to so uphold you, that. 
you bring up a really interesting point um, in the sense that people are always like, well, how are guns going to defend you from nuclear bombs? Um, and I think at the end of the day, there is nothing that can protect any of us <laughs> from nuclear bombs, um, mm -hmm. right? I think that's why our defense budget is so big in the sense of let's have enough so that we scare the people not into using them on us. Um, and so I think it brings up that point where it's like, in what scenario do you see um, and if you truly believe that the government can get to the level of evil of nuking their own citizens, then why do you trust the government to have any say in your current life? Um, and so when you know, they're asking that in reference to the Second Amendment, it's no, that, that's not what it's for. It's for a lot of things that we see. I mean, like the LA riots, um, all of these different things that it, it's battling back or at least holding protection from someone coming to your property, from coming to you or to your family. Um, I grew up in a house that had guns in it. Um, I knew exactly where they were. Um, did I know how to get to them? No, not exactly. Um, but by the right age, I was taught the right safety and the right measures and understanding what that was. Um, and to be completely honest with you, from where I'm from, I feel more comfortable sleeping in my house knowing that we have a gun. Um, and so, you know, people are always like, well, why do you need a gun? Why do you need a gun? And I was like, well, I don't necessarily need it in my everyday life, um, but I do need it for the sake of feeling confident that my family is going to be protected at night living in the woods. <laughs> um, it's like one of those things. And so I think a lot of this is a lot of straw man arguments um, and a lot of arguments that are used with like colloquial language or even analogies that don't really lead to what the actual conversation around this debate is. And so that's why I think the Second Amendment, at least the debate around guns, um, is entirely misconstrued. And we can't be on the same page to even talk about gun control if we can't even view it in the same lens. Yeah, you you said something there about, you know, the necessity of gun, right? Being asked, well, why do you need a gun? And that's always a sort of bad faith argument to me when people are, are asking, why do you need a gun? I don't see it as the role of of the state or someone else to tell you why you need a gun for this reason and that reason saying oh well you need it for hunting but you don't need it for this other thing so my view on gun control is if you're gonna let people have guns you can't really explain or restrict uh their use obviously you know you don't want people going around and shooting up schools but you know, the, the ask asking why you need a gun and why it's a necessity just feels very kind of condescending to me. And I don't understand why so many people are just intrude in, in something so personal to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's a really good point and, you know, definitely some really good, good insight there. I know um, at the risk of, of pivoting, there's also sort of a, a cultural appreciation for uh for gun rights in the sense that you know when when you go out to say go hunting or go fishing or something like that you are outdoors you are getting exposure to the natural environment and some of our country's you know natural beauty and i think that's one of the things that's sort of a misconception about gun owners i think there's this stereotype that anybody who owns a gun or anybody who owns a rifle is someone who's this gun-toting, Bible-thumping, crazy person who drives a pickup truck with a, with a, you know, two American flags, uh, you know, hanging off the back of the bed, and that's yeah, not no. the case. It's just <laughs> yeah. average Americans who either want the right to self-defense, 
they're sportsmen and they're getting outside, which is something we should all do at this point because we've been locked in our homes for a year. But but I just think that there's more to a gun than just a constitutional right. There are external benefits uh, to having such a weapon. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's like one of those things where if you own a gun in the Midwest um, and you hunt, you're not necessarily some Bible thumping to a absolutist walking around. Um, no, you just want to be able to feed your family for cheap. Um, and so I think like, you know, that's a, that's a big aspect of it too. It's just on like not being able to put each other um, in the other shoes in the way of if you don't want a gun, I'm not telling you, you have to go out and buy one. Um, but just because you don't believe in guns and you don't want one does not mean that that is a valid enough reason to infringe on my rights. Um, and so John, to kind of a quote you and not an attempt to pivot completely. Um, but Sam, I did want to ask you about your views on kind of gun control we were talking about earlier. Um, you gave us the historical context. Um, and I think there is necessarily a really large historical context in understanding that gun control in our history has been used to suppress the rights of minority communities. Um, And so when we talk about gun control and we talk about saving lives, um, a lot of minority groups come back and say, what are you talking about? It's the exact opposite. Um, And what's your take on that? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of outreach to be done to minorities that are that are pro pro Second Amendment, and we see that especially with minorities like Hispanics, who uh, you know tend to be more pro Second Amendment. And the one compromise that we have to do is uh, sort of understand that a lot of these groups aren't single issue voters. And so we need to say, okay, look, we can be pro second amendment, but we might have to compromise on say some social issues. So if we tell, for example, Hispanics that uh, we'll protect the right to the second amendment, that needs to come with some other campaign promises. And so, you know, I feel like where a lot of Republicans lose is that we'll be pro second amendment. And then Maybe we'll lose people to our stance on immigration or we'll lose people on our stance on uh, fiscal conservatism, for example. And so I feel like the Second Amendment needs to be combined with other policy areas that people, that groups that like the Second Amendment and are pro-Second Amendment uh, also enjoy. So, Sam, is is this sort of uh, a parallel to what we saw this past summer where we sort of had the the BLM riots, we had the, you know, all cops are bastards. So, so we have that phenomenon going on. And I think what we saw at the ballot box in 2020 was that a lot of folks in the minority community, whether they're, whether they're black Americans or Hispanic Americans sort of heard that messaging and they said, wait a second, we don't, we don't want to defund the police. We don't want to, you know, take away these various measures of public safety. These are the folks that, with notable exceptions, are the people that keep us safe. And I wonder if that's sort of the same line of thinking that a lot of people of color might have in that attitude towards the Second Amendment. Yeah, you know, I don't understand how you can be pro defunding the police and also turn around and say that you're pro gun control, right? Like if you are against the police and you want to defund them or get rid of them or replace them with social workers, right? You're going to need to have some sort of uh, fallback, right? And that fallback is the Second Amendment. 
And what we saw at the ballot box, like you mentioned, was uh, black Americans or other minorities hearing that maybe liberals will defund your police and being scared. And, you know, obviously combined with a pandemic and increased crime in some cities that have actually tried to defund the police, uh, we saw obviously some increased, uh, some a surge in gun purchases. And, you know, going forward, I think the GOP needs to capitalize on this because this was a huge opportunity to talk up the Second Amendment and get more black people voting Republican, more Hispanics voting Republican. And while we had a decent surge uh, because of Trump's campaign uh, in, you know, the minority vote to Republicans, we could have done much better, you know, especially in like places like Georgia, for example, you know, a lot of those Republican uh, counties didn't turn out in the runoffs. And so, you know, people like Purdue and Leffler should have emphasized it. So I think it's it's a national policy area where we can make a lot of ground and, you know, we can paint the other side as, oh, they're anti-Second Amendment because in my opinion, they are. They so, are, you know, yeah. So we need um, to take that to the ballot and get everyone voting <laughs> Republican to support the Second Amendment. So, well, And I entirely agree with you. Um, but I think, you know, you both brought up a really good point that there was a lot going on this summer. Um, like so much that I don't even really remember it all that That's much. That's the under, understatement of the century. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's think about it. So the start of the summer was, you know, mid pandemic. Um, I would say, I mean, not necessarily peak, but at the end of that peak there. Um, and then we also had everything that was going on with George Floyd and BLM. Um, and then we saw a lot of other stuff just kind of happen and get people really upset. Um, and so something that I saw today preparing for this episode, and I was talking to John and Sam about a little bit more, is that um, this last summer, we saw the largest increase in gun ownership that we have ever seen in American history. So gun sales have nearly doubled in the first six months of 2020 than compared to 2019. Um, to the point where gun manufacturers almost could not keep up with the demand to supply guns. Um, and all this is according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Um, and I think that that is really, really interesting. So while we had all of the BLM stuff going on and the defund the police movement, um, we also had a record number of people purchasing guns. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of interesting research out there talking about how this was the pandemic and now that you're at home a lot and you're stuck in your house um, and whether that means that you now feel the need to either protect yourself or you're just kind of looking for a backyard quarantine activity, um, you know, but we did see this dramatic increase in gun ownership at the same time that we saw this large push for defund police. Um, and so I think that Sam brought up a good point in saying, oh, well, is this because you know, people are saying defund the police, let, let's get more guns. Um, but I think that it's a difference between we have national rhetoric and everything that's going on. And then we have the reality of what Americans are doing. Um, and so the national rhetoric is very much so anti-police and all of this stuff. And then we have the reality of more Americans buying gun owner, buying guns and becoming gun owners in the first time, the largest increase in American history. And I think that's insane. And I think that's not something that is seriously talked about enough. Yeah, yeah, we we certainly need to to value what Sam said earlier about how the United States is really unique in that it provides the right to own a firearm, not absolutely, but almost absolutely. And that's unique, but I just go back to March of 2020 when 
people were scrambling to buy things like toilet paper and hoarding food. And we got sort of at a primal level, really close to a breaking point. I know that sounds kind of extreme to say, but a lot of folks, you know, we live with so many different luxuries that past generations just wouldn't have thought to take for granted. But the idea that we're not allowed to socialize or we're not allowed to go out to eat or enjoy pretty basic social functions, that has a pretty big effect on our psyche. And it sort of drives people to a breaking point. And I think that a lot of people said, or they observed this and they said, maybe it would be good just in case to, to have a firearm in the house. And, you know, that's sort of what I observed without calling everybody who reacted to COVID a, a maniac. But yeah. I mean, absolutely. Granted, I can't say that I relate to you in the sense of, oh, that's like what I wanted to do. Because like I said before, I come from a house of guns. Um, you know, my, actually, so I saw this on Twitter and I think it's kind of funny. And so I want to bring it up now. Um, I don't know if you guys saw it, but basically there was a bunch of people that were going out there and talking about how the photos of people at prom, um, like with their dads holding like a gun or like a rifle behind them were like really cringy. Um, and it's really funny to me because I always interpreted that I mean at least where I'm from um you guys all know I'm from the Midwest very rural area that is something that has like always been a joke um has always been like really lighthearted. um something that my grandfather like actually did my mom tells stories of like my mom coming home from dates and my grandfather was like cleaning his gun um in the driveway like when she was coming home um and I think that that just shows like there is just such a stark difference in how we look at guns um and those who don't own guns view guns as this dangerous, violent, traumatic death machine. Um, and you're not wrong in the sense of that can happen. Um, but those that do own guns and have a background with guns, um, view them in just such a different way that it's almost like a cultural phenomenon as well. And I think John, that you had talked about that as well. And I think that that is a big point that when we talk about gun control and we talk about gun control and kind of when it gets brought up, like when it gets brought up after school shootings and all these different things, um, there is just, we are not even on the same page. Uh, so when we get to the point of talking about gun control or getting to a bipartisan agreement on what to do about it, um, which honestly the closest we ever got was after Parkland, um, and we didn't really see it materialize. Um, but we're not even at the same starting point. If you can't view something at even the same level of understanding or the same level of, I guess, maliceness, um, then we're never going to get anywhere. And so that's what I think is like the most frustrating to me when we talk about the Second Amendment and we talk about gun control is I don't ever see us having actual healthy gun control or actual substantive debate or understanding or education behind our legislation because people aren't even willing to understand those arguments. Yeah, and I think a big sort of reason for that, and this also traces back kind of to last summer, but the sort of the biggest uh, regions, at least in the, in the US that was impacted by the lockdowns were big cities. And in big cities, right, like New York City or Chicago, they have some of the most strict gun control laws in the country. And obviously, you know, the, the surge in gun purchases wasn't in New York City, or it wasn't happening in Chicago. It was either New Yorkers leaving and buying guns across in Pennsylvania, for example, 
or New Jersey, which can be a little bit looser with gun laws. But we're seeing this disconnect between big city Americans that see guns as this total disruptive thing that doesn't belong in our in our society and the more rural aspect of America that where, you know, guns are such a, an important institution in their lives. And a lot of things that conservatives like to bring up is they point to cities like Chicago that have massive amounts of gun violence. And they say, well, look, gun control doesn't really work there. We're seeing gang shootouts every day. So one of the biggest things we need to do uh, in Second Amendment legislation is allow bigger cities to loosen their restrictions on the Second Amendment. And by that, I mean, I want to see New York have some kind of sensible, at least concealed carry laws, because right now it is so strict that even security guards need to go through 20 different hoops in order to secure a weapon. And that's unacceptable. And so we need to bridge that gap if we want some kind of uh, healthy and constructive debate on gun control. Yeah. So it's funny you bring up New York City and the the culture around guns there. I, I grew up in the Northeast, in the North Shore of Massachusetts. And I don't want to say it was a place that had zero guns, but we didn't have anything close to the gun culture that you see maybe in the South or in the West or in the Midwest. And it was sort of interesting to me as I went to college and interacted with more and more people just to sort of learn about their experience with having guns in the house and, and stuff like that. But I, on the subject of, of gun control legislation, I think that L brings up a really good point that the jumping off point for discussion is just so far away on both sides of the issue. There's no one willing to create a constructive dialogue, at least on the national level. Um, I, I, people are going to get mad at me for harping on my experience with a campaign in 2020, but the, the candidate that I managed the campaign for, he, um, he's a member of the, the Rod and Gun Club in, in, our, in our state's state representative district. And at the same time, after the Parkland shooting, he was approached by a bunch of students at the local high school. And they basically said to him, you know, representative, we'd love to have a conversation about gun laws in Massachusetts. Would you be willing to sit down and, and chat about maybe getting some legislation on the books that we think would be a, a constructive step forward? And my boss is obviously a Republican, Second Amendment supporter. And he sat down with those those students and they had a really, really constructive dialogue about the different issues that they cared about. And that one-time discussion turned into a working group. And that working group ended up meeting multiple times over the course of two years. I still think that they meet to this day. And my representative worked with another Republican representative in the super minority of the Massachusetts state legislature. And they came together and they, they wrote a law that I, I actually, I'm blanking on what the law actually did, but it was a sort of common sense gun regulation that had support from both the right and the left. And it came about as a result of constructive dialogue. It was a Republican coming together with predominantly liberal students and working together. And 
I just don't know if there's any appetite for basic common sense, high salience discussions at the national level. I think that there's just too many moneyed interests, too many, too, there, there's a desire, there's an appetite for division. I think that the right and the yeah. left don't want the issue to be solved. We're always going to, like gun control is always going to be one of those things where we jump down each other's throats when we're talking about. Um, and I think it's also just because I think that gun control and the Second Amendment issues and gun violence in the United States, that when you see something like Parkland or like Sandy Hook or what just happened recently in the news, um, you assume that, okay, well, the only way to stop this is going to be really tight gun laws. Um, and Sam brought up this point. Chicago has some of the most strict gun laws in the country. Um, it also still has one of the worst gun problems in the country. And why is that? Well, because Indiana has some of the most relaxed gun laws in the country. Indiana's gun laws are actually very sensible. Um, it's very, very interesting if you look up kind of how they do it in different things. Look, Indiana is not every 50 states, so I'm not saying we need to copy and paste. Um, but the reason why the issue is so bad in Chicago is because Chicago is about maybe 20 miles, maybe literally a 20-minute drive um, onto the Indiana border. And so you have a city that has obviously at least a want for guns. Um, whether that be used for good and or bad reasons, um, and really, really tight laws. So there's no way of getting the good people the guns that they need to defend themselves, um, and there's no way of really being able to patrol what's going on in terms of the illegal gun trade, because Indiana is so close. Someone can go over to Indiana, and someone who bought a gun at a gun show can sell it to someone else. And so we're wondering why there's still such a terrible issue in Chicago, and it's because your laws don't make any sense with the surrounding area, or if you drive down further Illinois. And so what we have to see here is that having tight gun laws isn't necessarily always the way to go, because you have to have situational awareness. Sam, want to jump in? <laughs> yeah, uh, so your point about loopholes, sort of, right, like in Chicago, driving to Indiana, that's actually a pretty big deal. And when I was doing my research, sort of, uh, you know, seeing how uh, mass shooters acquired their weapons, right? We're seeing this sort of pattern in in these shooters acquiring their weapons legally. And for example, right, if there is no federal law that requires a seller to alert the FBI, for example, when someone buys multiple rifles, and Stefan Paddock, who bought 30 free firearms, mostly rifles, in a one-year period, he uh, he was the shooter in uh, Las Vegas a few years ago, right? That didn't raise any any alarms because it was all legal, right? Another loophole uh, I just learned today is that the FBI has three business days to perform a review and determine if there's enough evidence to deny uh, purchase after background check. And if it can't, uh, the customer can just go ahead and buy the gun. And these sort of loopholes have allowed mass shootings to occur uh, on a much more frequent basis than we should be allowing as a country. And so one of the biggest questions and sort of to tie this back into the mission of Gen Z GOP is how can we have a country that can curb mass shootings effectively because we have young Republicans and young Democrats that are scared of a shooting happening at their school, right? According to Pew Research Center, 57% of teenagers worry about a shooting at their school and an additional 29% 
think that, you know, they don't worry too much, but they still worry to some level. And so it is a sad state of affairs when our young and innocent are worrying about getting killed in a place of learning, in a place where they're supposed to grow and turn into a man or a woman. And so I think that if we want to go forward and close uh, these loopholes and curb mass shootings, we need to come to some to some agreement into how we do this. And Democrats usually, right, after mass shootings, they propose this legislation and that legislation. They say we need to ban weapons or we need to ban assault weapons and we need to install buyback programs. And, you know, after the last shooting, I read that Biden was weighing executive actions on gun control. And so we having this side that's not looking for sensible gun legislation and we have Republicans that are seeing you know, understanding that the root of these problems is not simply guns, but it's uh, the people that are either mentally not well enough to be responsible, or there is deeper divide, whether or not it's our healthcare and education system that allows these mass shootings to proliferate. And a quote by Senator John Kennedy is that we don't need more gun control, we need more idiot control. And I think it's a decent point that he argues here. So, you know, if we want to really tackle the root of it, we have to understand why these mass shootings happen, what causes people to be so angry at their fellow Americans that, you know, they feel a mass shooting is uh, the best way to resolve their uh, inner conflict. And Republicans always bring up the point about mental health. And then the left's response to that is always, oh, it's not just mental health. There's so much more here. And they're right, but they're right for the wrong reason. When we talk about mental health in terms of gun control, Republicans would do well by actually investing in the discussion around mental health, right? You know, you have the shooter in Newtown, Connecticut, you have the shooter in Parkland, you have all these different examples of people that perpetrate the mass shootings and and they're so horrible. And we almost always learn that there's something going on at home or the kid was bullied at school. And that is a problem. And when Republicans say, oh, we need mental health training and then don't really invest any deeper than the, the slogan, that is a problem. And it is a good point that we bring up on the right, but we need to actually listen to students on what's going on. I mean, whether it's talking about social media and how people have real problems with their their personal image and they are, are self-conscious and insecure or whether or not some kid is getting bullied or treated poorly by his, uh, his fellow students. I mean, that's an issue. And, and we really need to dig deeper on that. Well, John, and I, I think you bring up a good point too. And Sam, and it's kind of the same response here is like, part of the issue is that we get reactionary, uh, or at least the left gets reactionary. And I look, I think the right does it too, um, on certain issues. But one of the issues that the left gets super reactionary on, um, is gun control, um, and, and shootings and mass shootings. And so it's the sense of there are these huge, huge pushes for gun control. And then that conversation around mental health gets brought up. Um, and we talk about how mental health is, is really necessary and that we have to invest in it and all that stuff. And, and that's entirely true. Um, but they say that as if it's going to stop a school shooting. Um, and I think that we drastically misunderstand where the risk 
when it comes to gun control and guns and firearms comes to when someone is mentally ill. When someone is mentally ill, they are not statistically more likely to go out and commit a mass shooting, but they are a lot more likely to take their own life with that gun. Um, and so if we're going to have a conversation about it, if the Democratic Party wants to blame and advocate for gun control, gun control on the basis of mental health, then let's be honest and true about the conversation. Being reactionary in these situations is natural because we're human beings. Um, when I watched the TV or when I looked at my phone Valentine's Day a few years ago when Parkland was going on, as a human being, you have a visceral reaction. It is heartbreaking and shocking and sad and traumatic and violent. And all of these thoughts go on in your head in terms of how could someone do this? Like, how, how could we get to this point? Like, what's going on? Could, could that be my kid? Could that be my sister's? I mean, I certainly went through that fear. My mom's an educator. My oldest sister was still in high school at the time. I am very close with three little ones. And it's that human aspect of you that family values that we have in us as conservatives that cause that reaction. Um, and so Democrats really like to use it against everyone. They say, oh, you as a human being, you had a reaction to this really traumatic and terrible event. Um, so therefore, now I'm going to pigeonhole you and force you into saying that gun control is necessary. Um, and so I think that that's part of the problem, too, is if we only ever talk about gun control and we only ever talk about the Second Amendment and firearms in a reactionary context, then how can we ever expect the issue to be taken seriously? So what I'm hearing is is Elle hates guns and she wants to go full Beto O'Rourke on you and go door to door and take your guns. Is no. that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I mean I mean, look, I think I think a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of people on the internet would like to think that that's what I think. Um, but again, I think that that is entirely misconstrued um, and baseless and reactionary. And so I mean, let's be honest about it. And I it kind of implore you to as well, as, as soon as I'm done to kind of give your reactions or your memories to Parkland or Sandy Hook and all of these school shootings. Um, and so one of the biggest things that online conservative pundits love to throw back at me in a lovely Twitter fight is a screen grab from my freshman year of college of me at the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C., um, which to this day is still one of the most attended um, events in D.C. history. Um, and so it, it's that idea of I get a lot of this back, like, how can you say that you support the Second Amendment and then go to an event like this? Or, you know, they act like I was on stage giving a speech. Um, but the, the reality of it is, is after Parkland's, I was scared. I, I was so confused. I was 18 years old and I was looking at all these kids that were the same age as me and they just died sitting in a classroom. Um, and John knows this. I'm a very down to earth personal person um, and I'm very empathetic. And when those situations happened, I was like, this is a problem. Um, and because there was no normal conversation around gun control or what it meant or what the implications were or someone explaining to me that having stricter concealed carry laws actually leads to more illegal gun activity, um, you know, no one's sitting there and telling you that. So at the time, of course, I re reacted in the sense of oh, we have to do something about this because people are dying in schools. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was never but... rooted in me being anti-gun or think you know all of those things like that that's not it it was yeah. what i saw was going on i didn't want to have going on again 
Um, and so I went, I went, I went to the protest or I went to the rally or whatever it was. And I listened to Lin-Manuel Miranda and the concert and the huge event that it ended up being. Um, but just because you go to those events and you want to hear from the other side, doesn't mean that your points on something aren't validated. I'm from the Midwest. Uh, like I said, grew up in a house with guns, grew up, you know, talking about guns and talking about ammo and making our own ammo, um, and all of these different things. And just because you're a human being that has a natural human reaction when you see people die doesn't mean that you're automatically made anti-2A. And so I think, that, like, again, that brings up that reactionary point in the sense of just because you have a reaction to something and you don't want it to continue happening and you're looking for a solution doesn't always mean it's the solution that the government and that the Democrats are telling you it is. So just my reaction really quickly to those those two shootings, the two high profile shootings in 2012 after Newtown, I do remember. So I went to a Catholic elementary school. I think I was in seventh grade at the time. I might have been in eighth grade. Um, anyway, I remember we had a, a school. We, we always used to open the school day with a prayer, you know, in the entire school. And I do remember praying for the victims of Newtown and, and just being very moved by people coming together, Republican, Democrat, you know, that sort of was left at the door. And we were just praying and really just torn by the the loss of life, the senseless loss of life. That, that was my, my first memory. The second memory of Parkland, I don't remember necessarily where I was when I learned about the shooting, but I do remember the march. And I remember a friend of mine who went to school in St. Louis calling me up saying, John, I want to go to the march, but I have no place to stay. And I ended up, you know, opening up my, my college dorm to them and they, you came in and, um, they, I think they spent the weekend there and, um, I actually did also go to the march. We walked down and I remember just sort of going, going and observing and, you know, by all intents and purposes, it was people that really cared about the issue and definitely had that same sort of human gut visceral reaction to the, the shooting. And it's hard to, hard to blame them for, for having that reaction. Like, like you said, Al, when something like that happens, it's hard not to be incredibly moved by it. And one of the things that I remember from that day, which is really sad when you think about it, I was walking back home from the march and we actually encountered a, uh, I won't say his name, but a prominent instigator in the conservative movement. And my friend, and he tried to start filming people as they were walking by asking questions, sort of the gotcha thing you know, that they do with senators at the airport. And they say, oh, why are you here? Do you hate America? Do you, you know, hate guns? Do you want people to lose their right to defend themselves? And I think my friend gave a, and I think actually she gave an answer saying that she was pro-life and that was what moved her to go to a, a gun control rally. And the, the, you know, the conservative person filming sort of got really testy with her. And I remember as we were walking away, I heard from the background, oh, you know, must be your time of the month. And I just remember thinking to myself, you really have to be a gutless, soulless person 
to have that reaction in that moment to someone who's clearly experiencing a, a tremendous amount of trauma. And if you have that reaction, if that's the conservative reaction to people who want to have a discussion about firearms in the Second Amendment, then my God, we might as well just pack it up and go home because we're never going to win people over with that kind of rhetoric it, on any issue, by the way, claiming that a woman is is experiencing her, quote, time of the month. But yeah, it just really turned me off. But that, that's sort of my memory of the day. Sorry to drag on like that. No, you're good. I think you bring up a good point. Um, and so Sam, if you want to share yours, you're more than welcome to. You also don't have to. Yeah, I... I mean, I remember the Sandy Hook shooting was the one that got us. That was on the TV in my house. Just the coverage was constant. You know, I was glued to the TV. But weirdly enough, it wasn't a school shooting that got me thinking more and more about the Second Amendment. It was actually the the Las Vegas shooting, I believe, in 2017, I want to say. Um, that was in my – we in my class were talking about it. You know, coverage was on TV. You know, it was an English class and, you know, the people in my class, by the way, I went to a majority minority high school. So very few uh, white people, mostly Hispanics and African-Americans. But, you know, the conversation was focusing around, you know, oh, if you were if you were black or if you were Muslim or something, we would be having an entire different conversation, labeling him a terrorist and all this. And I, I didn't really agree with it, though I did kind of understand their side of limiting the Second Amendment so that this doesn't happen again and, you know, ensuring that people have adequate access to health care. But, you know, what surprised me about the Las Vegas shooting was people, you know, I remember watching those horrific videos where it was absolute chaos on the ground. No one had any idea where shots were coming from. You know, people were ducking and covering and trying to save their family's life. And, you know, in those moments, it really just makes you think, like, what is the point in the Second Amendment, right? And that's not to say that the Second Amendment is bad or anything. But in those moments, there is really a, a part of you that wonders if it's worth it, right? You know, like, should we just completely ban guns? And I think where Democrats sort of have the edge is that it's very easy, right, to just sell a, a topic or a policy that says we've had a lot of mass shootings, time to ban guns. And a lot of conservatives obviously get flack for being against, you know, these types of gun legislation. But I think there is true debate to be had on the kinds of limits that are acceptable to conservatives, because it's not enough to just say, I am a second amendment absolutist anymore as much as i wish that were true but i do think we need to come to sort of some sort of conclusion and agreement within the conservative community about how do we curb this because like john said whenever we say that it's due to mental health or this then democrats are like well you don't really support mental health reform um so i think i think it's a topic that people tend to be like i also said reactionary about and understanding what makes different kind of uh, voter groups tick when it comes to the Second Amendment is going to be crucial for the GOP. 
Yeah, well, Sam, thanks so much for your perspective. This was a super fun and interesting conversation. So I just want to say that, you know, the things that we talked about today in no way, shape, or form speaks for everyone in our organization. I'm sure that every single one of our members has a different perspective on this. And so this is not endorsing any policy or saying that we can and should do something. Um, but I do think that Second Amendment issues are going to be uniquely important to Gen Z, um, especially as we continue to grow up. And by the time that we're able to actually run for office, I do see this being some, potentially an issue that we visit. Um, and so with that being said, I don't know what the right answer is now. I don't know what the biggest balance between gun control and you know preserving the true origins of our Constitution with Second Amendment is. Um, and... Obviously, that's going to change as I grow and develop and learn more and get stronger opinions on things. Um, but I do think, Sam, that you're right, that we just do need to start having these conversations. With that, everybody, that sort of puts a, uh, a ribbon on our long discussion about the Second Amendment. I, I definitely appreciate Sam coming on and talking about his experience and the, the piece he wrote. I also appreciate Elle's uh, sort of life experience growing up in the Midwest and having guns in the house and sort of how the culture of that has been a part of her life. And I think where this leaves us is reflective on the the different shootings that have happened even in the last couple of weeks, whether it's in Atlanta, whether it's in Orange County, whether it's in Boulder, those shootings sort of underscore the importance of this discussion. And no matter what side you come down on the issue of gun control, we know that the issue of gun violence is fairly prevalent in our society. And as young Americans, it's incumbent upon us to engage in a good faith discussion, Republican, Democrat, listening before we talk, understanding where people are coming from, because that's the only way we're going to actually get things done. And I call me a, you know, a hopeless optimist, but no, that's not a phrase. Call me a crazy <laughs> optimist, but I do think that there, there are examples of how we can come together and have these discussions. And we just really need to do that. And our, our hearts and our, our prayers and our intentions go out to those who have been recent victims of, of gun violence. And at the end of the day, this, this sort of thing doesn't discriminate. You know, there, you know, people aren't shooting Republicans. People aren't shooting Democrats. They're shooting their fellow human beings. And that's a problem. And young Americans know that. And if the Republican party is going to be, to be ready to engage with the next generation of voters, we at the very least need to acknowledge that that's something that's on their minds and on their hearts. And with that, we will conclude our third episode of our second season. I would encourage you all to visit genzgop.org or follow us on social media to engage with our other content. And we appreciate you listening. Everybody have a good week. Oh,